Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshleck. Coming up in this episode, environmental correspondent Zero Rose talks with Neil Gazwami, newest member of the Monroe County Environmental Commission, on the understandings, on the understandings fundamental to bridge to bridge divides and implement the changes needed to correct the course of civilization, and create a climate resilient society, cognizant of the environmental and societal consequences of our consumerism and creature comforts. And now for your environmental reports. Now that we're at the end of the hottest summer ever recorded, what can we expect next year? It's possible to predict this, impossible to predict this, because trends are not easily reversed. Oh, is possible. Excuse me. <laughs> we should expect annual increases in the atmospheric carbon dioxide because that happens every year. We could expect the forest fires in the West, Canada, and Russia to continue. The Canadian fires have consumed approximately 18 billion trees. It's expected that next year we'll still be experiencing El Nino, so we should expect more forest fires. Growing forests absorb huge amounts of carbon dioxide. The tendency of storms to track over the same path is a consequence of global warming. The jet stream is slower and more wavy and storms follow the waves. We should expect the same trend next year. This past summer has been a disaster for the Earth's coral reefs. A hot summer next year should kill any coral reefs that survived this year. Glacial melt will accel accelerate every year. The Thwaites Glacier in Actar Antarctica is expected to drop into the sea within a few years. and This will cause seawater levels to rise by about two feet. This could, in turn, destabilize neighboring glaciers, potentially increasing future sea levels by almost an additional 10 feet. There will be an additional seawater rise from glacial melt on Greenland. Uh, an astounding number of Alaskan snow crabs disappeared from the Bering Sea over the last several years, and scientists say they finally discovered why. A new paper published in Science blames marine heat waves in 2018 and 2019 for the decimation of 90% of the snow crab population through 2021. Around 10 billion of the crustaceans, Smithsonian Magazine reports. The snow crabs died of starvation as temperatures rose, the researchers say. Quote, when I received the 2021 data from the survey for the first time, my mind was blown. End quote, said lead author Cody Suwalski. Everybody was just kind of hoping and praying that that was an error in the survey and that next year you would see more crabs. Snow crabs thrive in colder waters and usually enjoy temperatures below 35 degrees Fahrenheit on the floor of the Bering Sea. While they can survive in warmer waters up to 53 degrees, they need to eat more when things heat up. 
From 2017 to 2018, the calories they needed quadrupled, Suwalski says. Last year's crab season was canceled, and the cancellation of this year's season was just announced. Quote, we are now witnessing more and more big crashes associated with extreme temperatures, end quote. Zoologist Christopher Harley tells New Scientist. The list of species and ecosystems that are strongly impacted just keeps growing. CNN notes that Arctic temperatures are warming four times faster than other parts of the globe. Suwalski tells CNN that in the long term, the crabs will likely move north, while in the eastern Bering Sea, we probably won't see as much of them anymore. There is a small but growing population of snow crabs in the Arctic Ocean. Crabs from Alaska have settled all along the northern Russian coast and as far away as Norway. On a more positive note, Energy News Network reports the Ohio-based Cleveland Cliff, Cliffs Steel Mill succeeded in beating its goal to cut greenhouse gas emissions from its iron, U.S. iron ore steel operations and won recognition from the Department of Energy. The progress is part of a broader industry trend to cut pollution that drives human-caused climate change. Yet advocates say there's a lot more room for further cuts. Cliffs slashed greenhouse gas emissions for almost four dozen U.S. facilities by nearly one-third from a 2017 baseline as of the end of this year. The steel industry was responsible for about 7% of global carbon dioxide emissions as of 2020, the U.S. Energy Information Administration reported last year. That's roughly one-sixth of all worldwide emissions from generating power, according to a Canary Media analysis of the International Energy Agency data. The iron and steel industry led the industrial sector with the concrete industry coming in second. The Coca-Cola company is the world's largest seller of plastics to consumers, and it may surprise younger listeners to learn that the beverage giant was an early leader in refillable bottles. I actually remember that. <laughs> A century ago, it got 96% of its bottles back for reuse by offering customers a bottle deposit. Unfortunately, Coke gutted its own refillable, refillables infrastructure in the United States between the 1950s and 1970s, opting for single-use bottles that pushed the cost of its packaging waste onto the public and the planet. A new report reveals that as early as the 1970s, the company knew switching to single-use containers would be worse for the environment, but did it anyway. To make matters worse, since then, Coke has fought state and federal legislative efforts to ban single-use bottles and other throwaway containers. Coke recently took a step in the right direction by committing to sell 25% of its beverages globally in refillable containers. But beyond one small pilot project in Texas, it hasn't circulated any refillable bottles in the United States. A petition to Coke encouraging refill is available online by going to the website of the Center for Biological Diversity. The New York Times reports the, that health risks linked to climate change are getting worse. The eighth update to a major international report shows more people are getting sick and dying from extreme heat, drought, and other climate problems. Climate change continues to have a worsening effect on health and mortality around the world, according to an exhaustive report published by an international team of 114 researchers. 
One of the starkest findings is that heat-related deaths of people older than 65 have increased by 85% since the 1990s, according to modeling that incorporates both changing temperatures and demographics. People in this age group, along with babies, are especially vulnerable to health risks like heat stroke. As global temperatures have risen, older people and infants now are exposed to twice the number of heat wave days annually as they were from 1986 to 2005. And now we turn to part one of a conversation between Zero Rose and Neil Gazwami of the Monroe County Environmental Commission on their respective paths to the engagement with environmental issues, climate change, and the systems that impact our lives, people around the world, and coming generations affected by our choices as individuals and members of larger communities. We have with us today Neil Goswami of the Environmental Commission of Monroe County. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about your background and your, your schooling that has kind of led up to you applying and getting on the Environmental Commission? Yeah, Zero. So first, thank you for having me on, and uh, thank you for the work that you do to try to care for um, those who are less fortunate than a lot of us in, in Bloomington and Monroe County. I think that's really important work, and um, oftentimes it's it's overlooked and forgotten, and, and thank you for doing the work that you do. So um, so I'm a, I'm a product of Bloomington. Um, I grew up here, and I uh, went to university elementary school just over um, on the east side of town, and I uh, went to Tri-North Middle School in Bloomington North and eventually uh, wound, you know, found my way at Indiana University um, and uh, graduated um, and uh, am now um, been doing a whole number of things. And we'll, that uh, was we'll talk uh, about. philosophy and political science, right? Yeah, it was uh, philosophy and political science. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And so is some of that kind of shaped your view on the importance of environmental matters and, uh, and I guess some of the social justice aspects of maybe some of your motivations for going toward the Environmental Commission? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So a lot of times, um, you know, w when you study philosophy, right, you, you have to think about all kinds of things, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. Um, and when you're reading and writing and and thinking, um, those questions and thoughts become really real, and you start to look at the world around you uh, through those kinds of lenses. Um, so, um, you know, one of the reasons, um, you know, I like that I wanted to join the Environmental Commission was that as a young person, I often think of the fact that I like to be around in 2080, uh, certainly 2050, and if I can eventually get there, maybe 2100. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, I, as a young person, that's what's on my mind a lot of times, right, is this um, vast expanse of future, what the future looks like, um, what does the now look like, right? What are the current trends that we see? What are the current trends on climate and the environment, politics? Um, and um, so those things that I studied and, and, um, and that I found, you know, uh, the work that I do now um, it has led me to uh, to join the Environmental Commission. And I don't imagine there's any problem with you accepting that humans are affecting climate change. That is absolutely something that we all should come to grasp uh, and, and grapple with. Yes, it is. It is real. Um, that's what the data shows, like it or not. Um, that's how it is. And, you know, as a young person, I'm going to have to live with it. So... 
you know, I, I have conversations, I'll find myself in conversations with, uh, particularly sometimes with older folks where I get frustrated because in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm a young guy having to deal with the, the fact that these folks are voting in, in ways that uh, don't view climate change as a real thing and they're not going to even be around, right? But then what it comes down to, though, where I found success with older people as well, what about, uh, you know, your grandson or granddaughter or niece or nephew or daughter? So that's where I found some success in that. Yeah, and I'm one of those. Um, I'm 52 now, and I got on the bandwagon in the late 80s and 90s. It was Carl Sagan who was testifying before Congress about the fact that climate change was happening, that we we're going to have to change course and everything. And then an environmental science course uh, popped up in my high school, the first, you know, first of it. And... Um, so I kind of learned some of it was cheesy John Denver videos, but then we like measured particulates on cheesecloth that we put on tailpipes. And my family didn't even have a car, so I had to find somebody's car to put this cheesecloth on. Then we looked at it under the microscope and go, there's the hydrocarbons, and we're counting them per square, you know. And that's what we're all breathing, and that's part of the climate change thing. And so I was on board since then and have been someone who's nagged people about the need to change change our ways, you know, personal and, you know, institutional, governmental, you know, a lot of what's gone on in the past 30 years is shifting it to personal responsibility and away from corporate and governance. And that's been a kind of a, a, a cop-out so that people can feel better, but also in a way disempowered and disengaged from affecting the systems that are really on the macro level having the maximum impact. You know, that's a great point. Um, a lot of, we're having to, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, how can you reduce your car, how can you reduce your emissions, your carbon footprint? And those are all re- really good things, right? Um, eating vegan, uh, using, your, using your car less, switching to a different kind of car. Um, but at the end of the day, there's, um, you know, we need to change our, our habits of consumption as well. And and um, the the world around us is constructed in a way uh, that revolves around commodity fetishism and and consumption of things uh, for the sake of consumption of things. Um, and what it does is you lose that on a larger teleological vision of what humanity can be or look like, um, and it leads to hedonism. Right? It just leads to um, mindless blind consumption for its own sake and to to the detriment of our future and being divorced from consequences of those actions right so and and as a young person you know my hope is um is you know well first of all i I start with you know seeing that right uh seeing those realities and and my hope is that other young people um maybe those who listen to this or um maybe folks who know other young people uh, can can help join, um, you know, whether it's um, whether you want to start volunteering for a, a, a nonprofit or um, even just reading, opening a book and, and reading about um, even your your local uh, hardwood forest. Right, um, there's a lot that we can all do to um, not only recognize that we have climate change and that we have these big problems environmentally and a dark future from that, but if we all just helped a little bit, then things could be a little better. So, And uh, I know you've worked with 
various organizations and in the interests of full disclosure um, you have volunteered for some of our like heat relief efforts that we've done under holistic affordable housing under mm-hmm. my nonprofit blue bee but neil is not a member of the organization but he has um, uh, sort of advocated our model for a tiny home eco village to the city council or at least our initiatives to try to create some kind of a safe space for the unhoused community and everything and uh, i know you've worked with indiana forest alliance and we've we've kind of covered them a lot but uh it's an ongoing thing with them burning and logging within the lake monroe watershed i don't know if you wanted to mention anything about your uh work with ifa sure yeah thank you zero so um so i work at ifa and uh we're currently um ifa was lucky to get a bill uh, introduced in the U.S. Senate, um, in that Senate Bill 2990. And what that does is it does really two main things. It uh, doubles the size of the Dean Wilderness. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, um, the Dean Wilderness is just that um, that area um, south of Lake Monroe. And it is, a lot of you might be familiar with what locals call the fire tower or the hickory ridge fire tower so that area is the deem and the deem is is indiana's only wilderness Uh, and wilderness has a technical definition right when we say wilderness we're not just saying you know this is some you know it's just wild right it has a it's managed in a certain way that essentially after the wilderness act right um that calls for you know as minimal uh human um interaction with the with the land as possible. So, um, so what this bill does is it expands the Dean wilderness. It doubles the size of it. And it also establishes the Benjamin, the neighboring Benjamin Harrison national recreation area. And, um, in that area, um, you know, one of the reasons why this is really good is because, uh, all the watershed areas in, in, in that, uh, in the Hoosier national forest that drain into Lake Monroe will be, uh, will be protected into perpetuity by this bill um and and not only that but it it also sets up a federal advisory committee uh, made up of folks like me and and you zero and and other folks from around here and other folks um in in organizations to to be a part of this advisory committee and and determine how that national recreation area is um is managed so avoiding things like over management and 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 burning and logging that are harmful to a lot of the um the species that live in there in that area, as well as potentially harmful to uh, to water quality. Yeah, and I was able to uh, get in on the public comment around the Houston South project, which I guess affords one uh, future public input on that. And that is the ongoing thing. This other uh, Dean Wilderness expansion is tentative, is a possibility. And uh, we had Stephen Stewart on of Indiana Forest Alliance, and he's advocated people, you know, contacting other senators, other representatives to, you know, get on, get in on support of that and co-sponsoring that to actually get it through. Yeah, the the big thing for that right now is that we need um, support from Congresswoman Houchin to introduce in the House, um, and support from Senator Young to uh, to co-sponsor with uh, Senator Braun. So it's it's a good piece of legislation, and and. We're, we're hoping that we can add to Indiana's only wilderness. It's really important, and it's it and it, it plays into the bigger picture that we talked about, right? Of of climate change too. 
right? Having having those that tree canopy there for uh, sequestering carbon is also important. It's it's the lungs of 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 the country, the lungs of the Midwest. So especially given all the forest fires that have occurred, uh, it would seem that we would need a bit of a climate preserve of one of the uh, last forests that haven't burned to the ground. Absolutely. And so. Uh, what were your ideas of how you could affect things with getting involved with the Environmental Commission uh, of Monroe County? Yeah. Um, so recently, um, the Environmental Commission hosted a uh, vulnerabilities workshop. The point of that was it followed the, the climate trends. This, this document that was um, written by um, one of the uh, – in, in works with the McKinney um, Foundation, uh, one of the McKinney Climate Fellows, if my memory serves correctly. And and that climate trends primer, um, what it does is it basically contextualizes climate change within Monroe County and in Indiana, right? So things like, you know, how many days a year will it be above 95 degrees Fahrenheit in the year 2080, right? Or in the in the summer, you know, it could be a lot more days in 95 plus degree weather. You could have much less snow, right? So you'll have generally just more warmth, more heat. In that workshop, uh, stakeholders and, and constituents, and um, I was in that workshop and, and some other folks, we had a member of county council and uh, we had a couple members of, of, of the county council and a member of the uh, um, county commission. Uh, uh, one of the commissioners was there and we all sat in, a, in, in huddles, right? And we all worked on looking at specific issues. So some of those vulnerabilities, whether it be roads and bridges or uh, energy, access to food, um, storing information digitally was one that came up. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting book that I've been reading. I've been uh, working with a good friend of mine named David Keppel on uh, starting something called the 22nd Century Project that seeks to kind of take all these larger themes, right, um, but also adding the, the lens of, of politics to it a little bit more. But as a part of that um, Dave recommended me a, a book called uh, Nomad Century by Guy Vince, and she points out where, uh, you know, because of climate change, there's going to be a lot of people affected by this. Millions of people will be, uh, will likely be migrating, right, due to, you know, massive flooding or massive droughts. And, and so, you know, another topic that came up in that vulnerabilities workshop, right, well, what if mass migration eventually will be uh, something that is, that we have to think about? Right. All of this is basically what it is, is it's taking, you know, we're taking the, the facts that we have about climate change and we're saying, OK, look, here are a bunch of things that can be affected from that. And how do we deal with that? So um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, I was really happy to, to partake in that first session. We had a lot of great conversations. And, and next month uh, we'll be doing the um, strategies workshop where we'll be um, essentially talking about ways to come up with solutions. How do we come up with uh, or strategize around um, X, Y issue? Yeah, and uh, some of what I think the commission has traditionally dealt with is things basically do with emergency preparedness, natural disasters, and we sort of have an ongoing rolling form of this now with with climate change. It's not so much thought of an occasional incident, but something continual to deal with and this idea of resilience, um, you know, mitigation still a goal, but the fact that climate change is rolling on a lot to do with the inaction 
of government and corporate America that the consequences are, are, are coming anyway. Well, great. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Neil. And, Thank uh, you. I imagine we'll be uh, discussing things in the future and in depth as, as projects and uh, initiatives kind of come forth. Yeah. Thank you so much, Zero. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. Today, I will talk to you about the eastern black rail, which has attained threatened species status as of 2020. The eastern black rail is a sparrow-sized secretive marsh bird and the smallest rail in North America. Adults have an average length of four to six inches. The adult is gray-black in coloration with white speckled upper parts, a grayish crown, a chestnut-colored nape on the neck, and a short tail. They have red eyes, black bills, and dusty pink or wine-colored legs. They are most vocal at sunset. They prefer dense vegetation, which allows movement under the canopy. They prefer shallow wetlands dominated with cattails. They eat aquatic beetles, spiders, snails, weevils, wood lice, grasshoppers, and ants. They will also eat seeds of an aquatic plant. Eastern black rails are very secretive and difficult to detect. They pair up from April to August, and they select the nest site together. The nests are made with grasses and other aquatic plants and are about two and a half feet above the ground. The clutch size is seven eggs on average, and the eggs are white to pinkish in color with dotted brown spots. They live five to nine years. The rail is threatened and faces the following threats. Habitat fragmentation, altered hydrology, land management, climate change, oil and chemical spills, disease, and human disturbance. In Indiana, legislature has permitted the destruction of many of our wetlands, which in turn has destroyed much of the rail's habitat. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And I am Robert Schell. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. The Devil's Backbone Guided Tours at Charlestown State Park will start tomorrow from 10 a.m. to noon. This rugged three-mile off-trail hike that is normally closed to the public. Pre-registration is required at 
Now here's a website for you. J-B-E-A-V-I-N at D-N-R dot I-N dot G-O-V. Drive through the holiday lights at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December the 2nd from 6 to 9.45 p.m. You can vote for your favorite site decorations and enjoy the holiday in the village. The Indiana Audubon Society is offering an online Building Birder Skills 2.0 class on Tuesday, December 5th from 5 to 7 p.m. This workshop will help you work on birding technology, concentrating on sound recording. You must sign up in advance on the Indiana Audubon Society site. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, December the 6th at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. Take a winter tree ID hike at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Lake Monroe on Wednesday, December 6th at 2 p.m. Learn how to identify trees after the leaves have fallen. Sign up at, and here's the website, bit.ly slash wintertree hyphen dec2023. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holly. Holly. Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Herhoski Schneider. Help me out on that. It's Herhoski Schneider. Uh, Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhoski Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our Engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Robert Schull. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening.